Today's reading is Mark 12, 1 through 17. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The word of the Lord. Well, I think um, just at the beginning of my message this morning that it's important to name and acknowledge um, the anxiety that a lot of people are feeling, a sense of unease that's grown over this past week. And along with that, also acknowledge that in, in, in so many senses, we are indeed uh, the luckiest people in history. We've never really had to deal with something like this before. You know, so many of these communicable diseases that were just a part of life, you know, 150 years ago, now no longer um, are a part of our consciousness and our concern. And we have resources at our disposal that would be the envy of every other society in the history of the world. Just 100 years ago, even less, there were no mechanical ventilators, no intensive care units, uh, no, glo no global health monitoring systems or antiviral medications. So we're lucky that we haven't had to face the hardships that our parents or our grandparents or for the youngest amongst us, our great-grandparents had to face. One of my great-grandfathers died of tuberculosis. And he got sick when my own grandfather was so young that, that my grandfather as a young teenager had to take over running the family farm. And he worked himself to the bone, so much so that he said, I'll never do that with the rest of my life. 
And I had a great aunt who suffered cognitive difficulties for her entire adult life because of a, 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 a fever, a scarlet fever that she had contracted as a young girl. And so all that to say that this world and God's people have faced much worse in the not-so-distant past, not to mention the great plagues and pestilences of history, you know, smallpox swept through uh, Jonathan Edwards' Northampton Parish, Martin Luther famously ministered in the midst of the Black Death, and so we should take heart that God has seen his people through those times, and this too shall pass. But that might be of little comfort right now because uh, though we know that this pandemic will end, we don't know when or how or how many people that we know and love will be afflicted. And not just physically. We don't know how many people will face poverty because of this, how many people are going to lose their jobs because of this, how many businesses are going to close because of this, how many people will just have their lives totally upended. And just a week ago, that seemed like nonsense to even suggest it. And right now, I think the truest thing we can do to acknowledge is is there is so much that we just don't know. But what we do know is that we've got a, a long and tough road ahead. And we do know that as followers of Jesus, much will be asked of us. Because to us, so much has been given. And what we do know is that God is God and Jesus is King and the Holy Spirit is alive and active in the world and he has a word for us today from Mark chapter 12. Now this is one of those sermons that I've actually worked ahead on. Uh, I I had it all nice and outlined and and about half written because earlier this week, uh, Monday through Wednesday, I knew I I was going to a training that was going to last all day. And so I said, I need to work ahead. So I did all my reading last week and I outlined my sermon and I started writing it. Now, do you remember Monday through through Wednesday? Do you remember (laughs) that world? (laughs) It, It seems like we were so naive back then. We thought things would just keep going on as they ever had, that we'd be filling out March Madness brackets, I'd be lamenting the all-too-soon end of another Gophers basketball season, the Timberwolves would keep playing. Life was just going to continue as normal. And so, you know, I worked ahead, but, but then on Tuesday night, I really started to get uneasy. And on Wednesday morning, something just felt really off in my spirit. And so I left my training early. And I came into the office, and Matt was in another staff meeting with his role with Ace. And I kind of snuck in there and said, hey, when you got some time, we need to talk. We need to talk. And he came into my office. I said, we've got to get an email out to the church about this coronavirus thing. And so that same night, we had a Zoom call with all of our leaders, and I sent out that email now on Thursday about all the precautions that we were going to implement this Sunday so that we could, you know, worship um, in, in a safe and a sanitary manner. So that was Thursday. And then Friday happened. And what I had said the day before wouldn't cut it anymore. And so another conference call late on Friday night. And this time there was this growing sense that these were extraordinary times that called for extraordinary measures. And so yesterday morning we made the decision with almost every other church across the metro, if not the state, and countless others across this country to not hold a service that is open to the public. 
And just for a frame of reference, none of my closest friends and colleagues in ministry um, who are spread across this country are are having a, a public worship service today. All of them are streaming. Now, I want to be clear that what we're doing is not canceling worship. We're not canceling it. We're still, I mean, as long as it's lawful, we're going to get physical bodies in this sanctuary every week because we recognize that it's our sacred responsibility, the sort of 12 of us who are here in the building this morning in order to, to make things happen, that we have a sacred responsibility to continue worshiping God together. The incarnation matters. And so we're physically here, and we represent all of you who, who aren't here, who are at home, who are watching this, who are going to watch this. And so we, we, we represent you here. And, you know, we also get to get together through the miracle that is the World Wide Web. Now that we've made this sacrifice, it's actually related to what Jesus says in our passage this morning. And my sermon today was written just last night. They call them a Saturday night special, and those are usually dangerous. But this is what I felt like I had, I had to do, because I felt like if I wrote it any sooner, any sooner than that, the world would have changed again. And so I'm going to focus on the latter part of our passage, Jesus' teaching about paying taxes to Caesar. But first, I just want to set things in context. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but ultimately he's come there to die. And so for those of us who feel right now like we're living under the shadow of death, remember that we worship and follow a Savior whose entire life was lived in the shadow of the cross. Jesus came to Jerusalem to die, and he was a young man. Now, when he got to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and he drove out those selling animals and the money changers. He he disrupted, if only for a moment, the economic and religious system. And when you do that in Roman Palestine in the year 33 AD, you're pretty much asking for it. So the Jewish leaders, they they didn't want another wild-eyed revolutionary bringing down the power of Rome upon their heads. And the Romans, for their part, they were actually normally extremely tolerant extremely tolerant, except of anything that smacked of rebellion. And so here was Jesus coming to town, being exclaimed as king in a city that already had a Herod and already had a Pilate. What's the old saying? Uh, Two's company, three's a crowd. And so the wheels are set in motion after what Jesus does in the temple uh, for the charges that will eventually lead to his arrest, his trial, his torture, and his execution. And so at at, at this point in the story, things are really starting to to escalate. The tension is rising exponentially, as it were. And so the chief priests and the scribes and the elders demand that Jesus tell them, "By, by whose authority, by what authority is he doing these things? bringing the temple courts to a grinding halt. Who do you think you are to have the authority to do that? And so he answered their question with a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they were dumbstruck because it was a question that they couldn't answer because no matter what answer they gave, they would be wrong because they had opposed John. So he refused to answer them, and then then he told them a story about a vineyard a landlord and some extremely, outrageously wicked tenants. 
Now, unfortunately, I'm going to basically have to pass over this story this morning. But needless to say that when Jesus told this story, the Jerusalem elite, the religious leaders, they got the punchline. They didn't miss the point. They were the wicked tenants. And after they killed the son, God was going to take that vineyard, which was Israel, and give it to others. God was going to take it away from them and give it to others. And so Jesus is making it completely clear that he has not come as this conquering king to replace the Romans. No. He's coming because God is going to replace them. The gauntlet has been thrown down. And so now these same religious elites, they send the the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to try to give him as good as he gave them, to ask him a question that was impossible to answer without exposing him. In in, in the immortal words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. (laughs) Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is a brilliant question, really a brilliant question, because no matter how Jesus answers it, he's done for. And the tax they're talking about was a Roman head tax. It was a poll tax, as they call it. Basically, if you were a Roman subject and you lived in a particular territory, you had to pay a one denarius tax every single year for the, you know, for the, for the glorious thing of having Rome rule over you. And it was hated because of that, because it was a sign of your subjugation, right? It was almost a surrender of your dignity when you paid it. It was admitting that you were a conquered person. And in fact, when this tax was instituted just just a few years before uh, our, our passage this morning in Mark, a man named Judas the Galilean had led a revolt against this tax because he understood what the tax meant. It meant acknowledging Roman rule and Roman authority over God's land and God's people. And so Judas the Galilean had said, he had led this revolt and he had said, God is king. We've got to cleanse the temple and don't pay the tax. A, B, C. God is king. Cleanse the temple. Don't pay the tax. Now, God is king. Cleanse the temple. A and B. Jesus has already committed himself to those two points. And so the question then that they have is, well, you said A and B. Now, what about C? And if Jesus said, yes, I I adopt Judas the Galilean's program and his platform, boom. Rome would come in and squash him like a bug. You know, nothing is certain in life, what? Except what? Death and taxes. And also death to those who encourage other people not to pay their taxes. But if Jesus said, you know, pay the tax... Well, then he was actually acknowledging that the Roman occupation was legitimate. And so this whole Messiah thing was a complete farce. If Jesus answers pay the tax, it would be his emperor has no clothes moment. So do you see how brilliant this question was? How it put Jesus in an impossible mind. And the question to Jesus was basically this. Are you a revolutionary or not. If yes, you're done. If not, well, all of these people didn't follow you around. They didn't come into Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they thought you were going to bring a, you know, spiritual kingdom, and that by doing so, they'd get to go to heaven when they died. 
They've got Jesus trapped in the proverbial box. But then Jesus pulls a masterstroke. He says, well, you're asking me about this tax. It's paid with a denarius. Bring me the coin and let's have a look at it. Now, a denarius was a common Roman coin. It was the equivalent to one day's wage, and it was the cost, as I said, of the tax in question. Now, on that coin was the image of Caesar. I believe it was uh, Tiberius Caesar at this point. Now, one might ask what a good God-faring Jew in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover was doing, carrying around one of these coins with the image of a pagan king on it. But that, for our purposes this morning, that's neither here nor there. But not only was Caesar's image on it, but as Jesus says, well, whose inscription is on it? And one of the wonderful things is that we, we have these coins. You know, archaeology has preserved these coins. We've discovered them. And so we can see what that inscription says. And the inscription on that coin said, you know, King, Son of God, High Priest, Pontificus Maximus. So Caesar's image and Caesar's title. King, Son of God, High Priest. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And that word for image, whose image is on it, is, is icon. And that's actually the same word that's used in Greek, the Greek translation of Genesis 1, where it says that human beings were created in God's image, God's icon, and likeness. So Jesus asks, whose, whose icon, whose image, whose inscription are on this? Caesar's. Well, then render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, and unto God what belongs to God. Now, this is one of the most cited, most brilliant, and indeed most difficult teachings of Jesus, and it bears directly on what we're going through as Christians in America today, because this, this passage speaks to our responsibilities, both to the civil authorities and to God. So what belongs to Caesar? What belongs to the civil authorities? Jesus is saying that which bears their image. Now the civil order, it's, it's vitally important. Without it, the world would descend into chaos. We need governments. We need rulers. We need authorities. We need laws. We see what happens in societies that don't have those in a reliable and predictive way. And we need just enough of them. It's like the Goldilocks principle. Too little, it's chaos. Too much, it's authoritarianism. But we see what happens when the civil authorities don't do their jobs. Right? People die. Viruses spread. Panics happen. Markets tank. And so in this time of pandemic, what do we owe Caesar? What do we owe the civil authorities? And I believe that we owe them our submission insofar as what they ask furthers public health and public order, right? We, we, we went ahead and canceled the public gathering of God's people for worship here today, largely because of what the governor of Minnesota asked us to do. We rendered unto Caesar that which is Caesar. It's Tim Walls' job, part of his job, to protect the citizens of Minnesota from the spread of COVID-19. And so that's why we're taking these extraordinary measures. Not gathering together for worship is an extraordinary measure. Giving up gathering as one body around God's word and table on the Lord's day, it is a profound sacrifice we are making in honor to order our elected leaders and our fellow Minnesotans. And incidentally, I believe these same sacrifices 
ought to be asked of our schools starting immediately. And, and you're watching this live stream. The governor is giving a press conference at 10 a.m. And so I hope that he asked our fellow citizens to share in these same sacrifices that the church has embraced. Now, in the New Testament, when it talks about the relationship between the church and state, between the church and the civil authorities, it, it upholds three principles. First, as I said, the state is ordained by God because order is better than chaos. Second, we cannot accept the benefits of the state without, without also sharing in its costs. That's why we pay our taxes, even when we don't support all of the things the state does. And, and we're lucky because we live in a representative democracy, and so we can have an influence upon what those taxes are. But there are many things my taxes pay for that I don't support, but I am a citizen, and so I have a responsibility to pay for that which the state provides. I am a stakeholder in this civic project. We all are. And lastly, and, and this point cannot be overlooked, and it actually leads me to, to the last things I want to say, there are limits to the state's authority because we bear God's image. Therefore, we belong to God above anyone else. Because we bear God's image, our loyalty to the state is always subordinate to our loyalty to him. So if the state said, well, you know, you can't have a worship service this Sunday because we want to have a farmer's market on Aldrich, and uh, when you guys come to church, that sort of gums up the work. It works. It's too much traffic. We would have to disobey that order because we belong to God. So we owe the, degree a, a, we owe the state a degree of obedience in maintaining public health and safety. But what do we owe God? Now, before jumping into that, I just want to highlight how revolutionary Jesus' answer actually was. Because what Jesus wasn't saying was that, well, yeah, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, meaning Caesar's got his whole, you know, circle and sphere and realm over here, and God's got his over here, and, you know, they're kind of separate but equal. And Caesar, you know, he, for his part, he would have said, well, yeah, 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 yeah. This is what belongs to me and to your God, the God of the Jews, you know, Here's my big circle. Here's your little circle down in the corner. You can have that. And sometimes, even though we're a long ways from ancient Rome, I think sometimes we still think about sort of, well, the civil order is this, and the church can get its nice little bubble down here. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. He's saying God's circle is all-encompassing. And God has granted to the state, to Caesar, to the civil authorities, this little chunk down here that I allow them to have. And so we do owe Caesar something, but we owe God everything because we bear his image. We are his most treasured possession. So during this pandemic age, what do we owe him? First and foremost, our trust. Now this might sound facile, but it's not. What does it say in Genesis? That Abraham trusted in God, that he believed in God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's why St. Paul says that we are justified by faith. That's the foundational claim of Protestant Christians. We are made right with God, not by anything that we do, but by what Jesus has done for us. And so at the heart of what we owe God at this time, especially as Christians, is trust. And trust is so important because we are about to go through some unprecedented and trying times. 
For some of us, we might even think that, that we're about to go through hell. And things are going to get worse before they get better. Maybe even much worse. Now, life is a roller coaster. It's filled with ups and downs. But that ride has been compressed for many of us. And so we're going to be riding this roller coaster together over the next couple of months. But, but that is life, and we've got, to, got, we've got to trust God on this ride. Because I'm going to steal this directly from Dave Ramsey, you know, the personal financial guru, who are the only people who get hurt on a roller coaster. The people who get off. The ones who jump off. The ones who stop trusting. Now, God is going to see us through this, but it does not mean it is going to be painless or easy. It's going to be hard. We're going to get bored. We're going to get scared. We're going to get lonely. We're going to get sick. And you know, honestly, on a long enough timeline, all of us are going to die. But don't get off the ride because God can be trusted to bring us through and to bring us home. And when I talk about being scared, I mean, uh, there are things that scare me. I'm scared for my family. Right? I don't, I don't want to get sick and die and leave them behind. And if you say, well, you only have a 0.2 or 0.4 chance of dying, well, I don't like that. I, I, I like 0.0. My youngest son, he's in a population that's considered at risk. You say, well, kids don't really get sick. Well, I don't want to find out. I'm scared for him. I'm scared for my kids at school. I, I, I can't in good conscience send them on Monday. My parents are over 60 years old. My grandmother is 91. And people say, well, you know, the virus disproportionately affects old people, and they're the vast majority of deaths. Oh, well, I guess it's okay if massive amounts of them die. No. That is, is sub-Christian thinking. And I'm scared because I've never pastored through anything like this. You know, we're about as a church, we, we got this big Elevate campaign and this huge project before us. Tuesday, this Tuesday, allegedly, we're going to close on a loan. We're about to go through this huge renovation project. We're, and, and at the same time, we're about to completely change how we do church for the foreseeable future. The future right now is murky, and, and in fact, it's filled with lots of dark clouds. But I belong to God, and we belong to God. And so I'm going to trust him, because the God I know in Jesus is the only person who has ever been through hell and been to hell and come back to tell about it. So we owe God our trust, and we owe him our service too. By serving uh, the people who belong to him. The people who are also stamped with his image. Right? When you see people walking around today, whose image is on that? And whose inscription? The God of the universe. And so how can we serve our fellow brothers and sisters uh, who will bear God's image and likeness and his inscription in, in a pandemic? What can we do to preserve and protect their lives? Now, what we've been told is that this means social distancing. And I have to say that is a, a really terrible term of art, right? Especially in the church. But I do love what my Princeton Seminary professor, um, Shane Berg, uh, said about this, no relation. 
He's missing an E in his last name. But Chainberg, he was one of my absolute favorite professors. Um, and, and, and now he's in the seminary leadership. And they made the decision over a week ago to shut the school. And at the time, people were very, very confused by why this was happening so early. And so he wrote this about social distancing and Christian faith. He said, It is not fear or irrational caution that leads us to robust social distancing. It is rather fidelity to Christ's charge to love our neighbors and care for the least care for the least of these that compels us. Serving the common good in this way, to be sure, calls forth a sacrifice from us. We choose to limit for a season our participation in certain forms of human community which bring us so much life and joy. Yes. Which bring us so much life and joy in order to preserve human life. And so I adjure you in the coming weeks to practice what might seem extreme. Take means to isolate yourself and your family while at the same time reaching out to neighbors and friends who need it. Because if we do this, we can preserve thousands, if not tens of thousands, or maybe even hundreds of thousands of lives. And so serving our fellow image-bearing human beings who belong to God means that we also need to get creative in making sure that no one slips through the cracks, especially in our church. It means that we don't allow the bonds of affection between us to weaken, but instead find new ways to be in community and to love each other. Friends, the days ahead of us, not to mention the weeks and months, are going to be hard. But Jesus, I believe, has prepared us for the hard road. He's given us what we need, his words, his sacraments, his spirit, and each other. And so now is the time to put away childish things. The training wheels are coming off. Crises, they do not make or break us. They reveal us for who we are and ultimately for what we love. And I want to close with these words from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and A, number one, because they have always brought me such comfort, and I hope they bring you comfort now. And the question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for this day, for this moment. Might it for us as the church be a kairos moment, meaning a sacred moment, a divine moment. Where we don't abandon our posts, but we live into our calling, calling as followers of you in ways we never thought possible. Preserve and protect us, O oh Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.